Hello, Shannon and James. Good to see you. Hi there. So um, this is the first uh, collaboration uh, for our uh, Fashioning Critical Theory. Uh, I guess you call it a podcast. I sort of think of it as a space to process our conversations and material. And I'm really glad also that I get to talk to you both about this uh, conversation that we had this week, primarily around Harold Bloom's uh, 1973 book, The Anxiety of Influence, but also a little piece by Leopold Senghor. And hopefully we'll also have a chance to talk a little bit about it in relationship to Barbara Christian's uh, Race for Theory essay. I just wanted to start off maybe by talking about some of my, uh, how I walked away from from our conversation last night in the seminar. Um, I really love teaching for these kinds of reasons that the questions that came up in our uh, classroom, uh, they were wide ranging and, and very diverse, really helped me um, think with, I think, uh, more nuance and sort of more paths in and out of Bloom's book. The reason why I wanted to teach it is not because I find, you know, the particular subject matter, which is, you know, so Anglo-centric. And um, I think it was you, James, who said at some point, he just mentions names, no citations. You know, it's like, yeah. Shelley, well, which one? I, I, that was you, right? The, yeah, right. That. Yeah. <laughs> it cracked me up. I, I really was like, uh, you know, that that is a, a odd feature of the book. But it has its own uh, very deep, uh, uh, I think, presentational problems in terms of rhetoric and it's Anglo-centric. But I'm always interested in how books like um, Anxiety of Influence end up, can end up, they don't always, end up saying something more than they intend to say, right? Um, and that, that mode of subversion is always really interesting to me, the way books can subvert themselves. Mm. And one of the ways I thought that came out last night, and, and I thought that we had a really good conversation about the, um, about, uh, you know, the, the delimitations of the book and, and, and the exclusions and the, the, it's not even blind spot, but will, willful exclusions, uh, as well as the rhetorical structure of the book that, that raises so many questions. But I thought there was this really interesting moment where we started to think about, and this is sort of the direction I have gone in my own appropriation of his work and, and using it to read people like Leopold Sengor, is that it's one thing to think about the Freudian family scene in relation to, you know, this tradition of, of English, English language poetry, maybe with, you know, Rilke thrown in there for diversity or whatever <laughs> that is. But then to, for me, it's always interesting the way those notions of parasite play out in a context like a post-colonial context, like what it means to be a writer or a thinker moving outside of colonialism, where the paternalism of colonialism, and especially I think in Africa and uh, post-emancipation uh, Caribbean, the paternalism of colonialism is so strong, right? That, that missionary vision of it's not simply in terms of the rhetoric and the practices, right? Not simply the extraction of resources and the subjugation of bodies. It's always that. And it continues to be that in its neo-colonial forms. But also this idea of bringing civilization, bringing a certain form of writing and thinking to the colonized. And that paternal relation makes for me this really interesting twist on on the parasite and all of its revisionary ratios 
uh, that 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 Bloom um, outlines. It's interesting that just the parasitical sort of impulse uh, behind all of them makes for for me this interesting way of saying like, what would it mean for the subaltern? What would it mean for the marginal to sort of speak? to the paternal relation that a dominant class or a dominant tradition or a hegemonic power like England, like Europe, right, has, what would it mean to rethink or, or not even rethink, but practice these forms of parasite in these different colonial contexts? And in that way, I think that like something Bloom could never have expected becomes actually possible that like, a, you know, how parasitical is your anti-colonial literature? How parasitical is and in what form do these parasitical acts of writing and thinking and cultural production, you know, how do they map on and map differently to um, these revisionary ratios? So that, you know, I mean, I work on post-colonial theory and anti-colonial literature and poetry and art. And so obviously that's my way into it. Um, but I thought it came out in really interesting ways also in our conversation, in addition to many other things. But I just wanted to sort of put that out there and whether you want to comment on that or even, and, you know, your own processing of the material, uh, sort of, what is it, 16 hours later? Yeah, I think processing what you were just saying about how the destructive aspect of the anxiety influence changes in a post-colonial context, um, for me... The destructive aspect was something that like produced an anxiety in me, this idea that creation can only be destructive and negative and this march of progress towards the end of all literature that was riling me up as I read Bloom. In a post-colonial context, I think you're able to have a more positive spin on that destruction and it makes me think of the sort of destructive practices like blackout poetry or um, treating a book that is that isn't this like movement towards like i guess to use word like degeneration that i feel like is marching around in bloom's mind Mm -hmm. um so i I think it's uplifting to think about it in that light maybe yeah maybe could you say something more about you said like blackout poetry and book Oh, oh, I forget the word, but like the modification of books. That's really interesting to me because those are alterations of the sort of the father of the text or whatever, right? But it's very different. Um, But also I think it sounds like a little bit mapped on to this notion of influence and and destruction. For sure. Like uh, book treatment is is the word. Um, But we were talking about it in context of Zong. um, Mm -hmm. And... Oh, what was I going to say? Um, but I feel like with that, there's less of an anxiety around the precursor or the forefather where you yeah. don't necessarily want to be him. So the anxiety is wanting to find a way to be different without maybe as much of the anxiety of feeling that this great genius is better and how can I become a genius like that? It's, mm-hmm. I guess, coming from a place of less humility i guess um compared to the precursor yeah no that shift i think is super important in terms of like the the wanting to be like the father which is structures that book and that's why when we were talking about it i was so emphatic about this notion of tradition right that traditions have intense normative power 
But so does colonialism, right? It has intense normative power. But as you were just saying, I think that's so important that that difference between like emulation and and rage, right? Emulation and difference, which is the Bloom model, and that paternal relation that produces only rage is just a completely different sensibility. It makes you wonder if, uh, you know, what is the salience even of the word influence in that moment? Yeah, that like tradition aspect. And James, cut me off if you want to jump in because I'm saying too much. But like um, that tradition in Bloom, it's a swerve, but the swerve always wants to come back to the tradition to be the same, to be the original and not to be open to change. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Shannon, I think your comment is making me think about... um, in another class we read Baldwin's Fire Next Time and how he approaches the sort of the relationship of of power dynamics in the US and like um, sort of the critiques that he levies against black nationalists for sort of um, seeking out power like for sort of like a power that would reproduce the violence of um, sort of white supremacist structure in a different form. And he talks about this sort of sanctification of power, um, which I think is a really compelling hmm, concept yeah. that I was seeing in Bloom um, through this like very masculinist um, rhetoric that we, we've discussed. Um, and considering, you know, for someone like Baldwin, who's thinking about love or spiritual freedom, love as sort of this vital life force um or you know lord and like uses of the erotic um it makes me think about just the possibilities of pivoting from that sanctification of power or what i perceived in the text as like this glorification of creativity and originality which is rooted in the genius the figure of the genius who's always like Mm -hmm. a white male subject right and so for me that's the approach there is to um yeah to just consider like you know what does a repair you know what does a creativity that is not based in destruction look like um Mm -hmm. and at one moment i you know I, i was highlighting throughout but like thinking about he uses the term heroic a lot right and so um, somehow this yeah, he really think, does. That's yeah. a good. That's a good catch. It's a, yeah. it's a key term because the genius is heroic, right? Yeah, and I think so. It's on uh, page. I think this is twenty-one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, he uses it throughout. But in that, in the margin, I wrote about um, Jack Halberstam's queer art of failure, and it's like, how do we fail in proportions that are not heroic? You know, like when you fail in mm. heroic proportions, to what extent does that actually? glorify or aestheticize like your creative like failure if that makes sense it's like failure can be disruptive or like um i don't know like this whole anxiety of influence can be disruptive without being destructive does that make sense i don't know if that's possible yes but (laughs) i think there's a really deep way to coming back, you know, to my my own framing of, of the material with sort of anti and post colonial, there is in anti colonial, there's a limit to anti colonial struggle at the level of ideas, whether it's literary production or art or or theory, 
I think in part because the anti and anti-colonial makes it reactive, right? That one is positing and one has to at, at a certain level, right? In a certain phase, uh, the colonial, the colonial hegemony, a colonial hegemon as, as a paternal figure, right? Who has to be overcome in some fundamental way. But that's for me, one of the real differences between um, and this is thinking in a colonial context. I think it, it, the language is different, but similar in the case of somebody like Lord or, or, or Baldwin. But um, the post-colonial question, I think, always is how do we think? How does one think in a post-colonial context about colonial legacy and struggle against it, but in a way that is not purely reactive? And so, when you mentioned uh, the fire next time. I, mean, I love that that essay, and I think one of the things that is that animates it is Baldwin's rejection of the idea that his own thinking and that African American thinking needs to be so concerned with white people. And he has that line in in the essay where he's like, you know, who wants to be integrated into a burning house? Well, I think in the anti-colonial and post-colonial, it's like the anti-colonial sets the house on fire. But then it's like, well, you know, what does it mean then to stand outside the house? You've burned it down. And now, like, is there another model of reckoning with the past, this colonial hegemon? Or I think, and this is why we read Barbara Christian at the beginning, because I just think it continues to give critical gifts to us. That moment where she's like, you know, we're making poetry to survive. We're making poetry to make life happen. We aren't drawing on a tradition where you have to compete with the predecessor, right? But it's also, you know, there's not an essay, Christian's essay, it's not an essay that's obsessed with genius, that's obsessed with with somebody who sets a trend, you know? And that's why, you know, I love that word fashioning, right? And that's why this series is called Fashioning Critical Theory, but it comes right out of Lord, where she's like, we're fashioning life, and that idea of fashioning life rather than defeating the precursor, like what is gained in that? The conditions of it are, of course, conditions of subaltern traditions emerging, right? Or subaltern uh, writers emerging to create, right? Not simply out of reaction to a tradition. But it also, I wonder about the different kinds of literature it gives birth to or the different kind of cultural production it gives birth to. And that, you know, this, you know, you mentioned Halberstam and that it's totally interesting reference there too. Like, you know, because once we identify, and this is why it's important for me, I, I, for me to read people like Bloom is, and I said this, I say this a million times, it's not because I think Bloom is right or good, but because I think it helps us frame what's at stake in these other kinds of visions of literary and cultural production. Right, that it's not simply that Baldwin is trying to craft, you know, a, a relation of love, or Lord is crafting a poetry of the erotic, and Christian is appealing to that as as creation and sustenance of life. It's also that these are, um, you know, ways of marking, aside from a sort of rhetorical note, you know, th- not just that this white patriarchal male tradition that Bloom is talking about, but it's also the way our we have such a limit of our scope of what creativity is, of what influence can be, right? Yeah, Bloom has this um, way of talking about 
the creation of poetry and art, but also life in general, as life ends in death, poetry ends in death. Um, but a new model would be that life brings life. Um, and we were talking about temporality in class, and there's this like mm. linear temporality that Bloom ascribes to, but a more cyclical one, more in line with like ecological cycles, or even just like the way poetry seems to expand other poetry to me, um, something more regenerative. Yeah, that that actually gets me to think, Shan. I like that point a lot because it makes me think about again, like the question of like what is life within this, within Bloom's like epistemology and knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, and if we're speaking of like the anxiety of a poet becoming a human, and that is the anxiety of being kind of cast down from this perch of like demigod status that's the death right the death of the human right the death of life being like the human if that makes sense i don't know it's a little bit it's a little bit stretch but i think when you start thinking about something like um subjects who are in a constant state of social death like that becomes the question of you know a, a sort of black tradition that is emerging from the presupposition that they don't fit within the epistemology of life and so that's sort of what i was talking about i think yesterday yeah. around the frustration of um just what to make of bloom's framework um when you know what happens to like what is the imperative to write if it's to create if it's to like write in order to be seen as a human but when you're not seen as a human within this worldview, then your writing becomes something different, right? So I think that somehow mm -hmm. connects to this question of um, integrating into a burning house, entering into a burning house, or like associating with a colonial influence who doesn't recognize one's ability to speak as an equal subject, and not just an equal subject, but like part of the same human order um yeah i think yeah so yeah i'll just i'll leave it there because i think it's, it's yeah that's what yeah. i was getting from your comment or both of these comments and to add what you were just saying like um the breaking of the ego and then the rebuilding of the ego is something that is integral to how bloom talks about the different ratios and the steps towards like poetic becoming but what does mm -hmm. it mean to not have this like inherent ego that you can be a genius or that you are without question how can that break if it's not there because of your positionality and i think that you know this linking of you know and again this to to go back to the Christian piece and, you know, Lord, uh, the Lord quotations there. And I always think that the race for theory is just um, an sort of slightly more academic rewriting of Audre Lorde's nonfiction and in a really wonderful way. I, I imagine Christian would, would love, love it to be read that way. But I think when we think about, you know, queer forms of writing, black writing, black feminist writing as writing in relation to life, 
I really like this notion that that the background that has to be is not like is not um, just writing because life exists and then you're contributing to the sort of embellishment or enhancement of this notion of life, but really writing life into being. Right, that there's something about the need to say something for the first time. You know, I really like that about about Christian's essay, and you know, it's dated as as, as said a million times. Um, it's dated in the sense that she thinks no one's going to take Toni Morrison that seriously, or there's no black feminist critical tradition, and those things have changed since her essay. But I think what's important is thinking about like. Uh, or what I really love about the essay is that it also underscores like the, the, the expansiveness that writing has in relation to life or could have in relation to life. And it's that, that you know, as, as you both were talking about, and you brought up first there, Shannon, that this obsession with death is so fascinating to me in, in bloom. And it's one of those moments where I, I get it, but it's also one of those moments where my getting it, is a confirmation of a certain kind of subject position, not a certain kind of, of a subject position, right? As a straight white male. And I do have a kind of relationship like that with predecessors because, you know, just to, you know, you know, restate what's already been said, but it's like, you know, I'm not emerging out of a tradition of writing being related to the creation of life, but rather writing in relation to a tradition, right? But also, I think in the case of African-American writers, this is, I mean, it is a long tradition. I mean, it goes back into the early 19th century, at least. And that right, but that writing tradition as an expansive rather than destructive model that animated by life rather than death is for me a really interesting way of just recasting the tradition. I mean, there are combats, you know, I mentioned, you know, Wright, Ellison, Baldwin, certainly Du Bois and Washington, you know, it's no mistake that these are almost exclusively men. Um, there's some amazing exchanges, amazing in the sense of like, what are you guys doing uh, between Richard Wright and Zora Neale Hurston, where he called her a mediocre writer. And she was like, I've read your stuff. Let's talk mediocrity. Um, but thinking about and I, I for me it loops this question of life and death loops to a, for me a, 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 this really critical moment in the anxiety of influence when he's talking about the sublime and the 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 precursor sublime is met with a counter sublime and that that's the one that i'm always like what are you talking about the sublime is overwhelming and an enhancement of of our sense of limits but in this way that 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 is astonishing and met with wonder and curiosity. And why would you have to have a counter sublime? Right? What, 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 why is it not an inquiry into the sublime? Why is it about literally with the counter sublime destroying the sublime? This is these, this moment where I think it goes, Bloom's text goes beyond this sort of like when writing has always been able to presuppose life, it can have a relationship to death in terms of precursor and strong poet. But now, now it's like you've allowed this idea of death to even intervene in the case of the sublime, which is so often in, in the tradition he's talking about linked to God, right? The origin of life, eternal life. That's the sublime, nature and God and the soul. And so why do these things end up being animated by death seems to me to be gratuitous, actually. 
rather than like this it's from it it seems to me like this is where it opens on to the entirety of the world like you know let's expand the sublime you know and in in a chestnut poem in a um you know in a wordsworth poem in a you know an ancient mayan poem i mean this is where the world seems to have a moment of relation to life but bloom even in that moment insists on death Sorry, I'm going on 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 this, but you know when you mentioned this life and death stuff, that's the thing that really got to me as odd in the book. Well, maybe that's because if each poet becomes strong, right, in Bloom's thinking, he has to become this sort of like, and I'm saying he because it's only he for Bloom. He has to yeah. become this like genius god figure. So maybe only God can kill the sublime. So it's this kind of egotistical. Um, by thinking about the sublime that kind of reduces and trivializes it only god can kill the sublime i really like that phrase i'm gonna, I'm gonna note that i'm not like oh, we're recording this i don't have to write it down but i love that phrase only god can kill yeah. the sublime and so you have to become a god yes that's i, lo- I love that yeah part part of this so and not to return unnecessarily to this but i think Part of this gets me back to the anxieties around the anxiety um, of sort of what is the context in which this um, book is emerging and um, because what we're talking about in some ways is sort of the singularity of like there has to be one, there can only be one, right? And just that thread running throughout that, that he's insistent on defining what is a poet what counts as sort of like trying to figure out what counts as interpretation, creating a sort of hierarchy of value between poet, poets, poet readers, um, common readers, um, with this whole surrounding question around the historical moment and, and then the, the trajectory of this text as influencing literary studies for some time um, after. And so yeah, it just makes me think like, Again, the anxieties around, at this time, women and black writers emerging with their own traditions. And so, like, why are we at this historical moment coming back to the notion of influence and the kind of greats of English and Western literature um, at this moment to to really, when you, you, you know, you guys had the mic for generations and why is it that you just wrote this right now right it's like a little bit of a question that again links back to that epistemological debate around who who has the ability to write and to be a Mm -hmm. genius within like the frame of um you know the academy and then also you know within the kind of hierarchy or chain of being of of humanity as well um I don't know if that's something we want to talk about. But yeah. It's, yeah. it's just something I've been thinking about throughout um, because he does, like there are a lot of anxieties around also being a critic and he has this whole thing around misinterpretation or misprison, which we didn't talk too much about yesterday, but it's, yeah, it's one of those things where I, he seems to be wanting, ironically too, with Barbara Christian talking about practical theory, he also has a framework of practical theory, which is, yeah. Like, it ends with weird. a poem. Yeah, <laughs> the, the concludes epilogue is a poem. Yeah, right. I think. And then the middle section, I'm like, okay. And, and so, and it's it's a struggle because, yeah, I'll just leave it there because I think, 
it's, <laughs> it's hard to, to make sense of. Were you going to say something, Shin? Uh, yeah, I mean, what you're talking about, James, makes me think about one of the other threads of the class that has probably been the thing that like kept with me, um, which is how his idea of influence, which is destructive and not additive, I feel like it's rooted in this fear of like joining and or adding and integrating and being changed by um, joining the other, mm-hmm. integrating with the other. Um, whereas models of influence that are less um, hierarchical or less linear you can have all sorts of influences coming in and out that change each other and there's a back and forth change and uh this is where i was talking about octavia butler in class and the series was lilith's brood and dawn uh Uh, can't believe i couldn't think of it (laughs) (laughs) i struggle so much with titles and dates on the fly so (laughs) me too yeah so you know the when I think about the emergences of anxiety of influence, you know, just the writing of the book, why it would be written, there's, um, I mean, I think he's trying to write against a tradition that sort of sees the West, right, which itself is a myth, but we'll just we'll use it, but the West as this sort of accumulating genius, right? That all the geniuses sort of get added together to be, you know, that that's the that's Western chauvinism, right? It's like the great tradition and the great figures and the great books. I was educated in a great books program. It's like I understand that what that language is about, you know, and I think we all understand it because it's it's you know how people you know have talked, you know, and and continue to talk in so many uh, corners um, for centuries. And so for him, I th- one of the things that I like about the book in that context is placing death at the heart of this. It's like, no, we're not accumulating. This is a series of murders. And I like the dramatics of that. You know, there's something that like, it's iconoclastic. It's like, you just imagine him, um, you know, sitting there at Yale with all these sort of, you know, waspy armchair, you know, literary critics who, you know, you know, venerate the tradition and sort of genuflect about it. And here he is, this sort of um, maniacal Freudian Jewish professor who's like, no, there's a whole different thing here around death and upset. And so it sort of as an intra-Western squabble, I think it's totally fascinating. But I think especially when we located at that moment and what you, you know, when you were saying, uh, James, about the, the, the emergence of women and black writers or just global South writers in the moment, uh, and it's a strong emergence, right? It's overwhelming emergence uh, for somebody like Bloom or just for that kind of literary established, white literary establishment. And as you were saying, Shannon, this sort of fear of contamination, right? That's, that's my phrasing, or maybe you said contamination, but this fear of like being contaminated by predecessors or even these like emerging different demographics for put in a really boring way makes a really interesting thing because I think what animates a lot of, of anxiety of influence is fear of castration, right? That every strong poet worries that his balls are going to be cut off by his precursor. Right. And he'll lose his vitality and his phallic power. Right. 
And so that very, I mean, that's straight out of like the most patriarchal masculinist Freudianism period. So it's a fear of castration that drives the sort of murderous uh, rage, right? Whatever the revisionary ratio. But it's interesting to for me to actually recast that in light of what you both said, in not in terms of castration, but in terms of a fear of contamination, which is your more garden variety sort of xenophobia. Like, what would it mean to be tainted by this? It's like a version of like race mixing anxiety or something. It's like, what if I had to think about the tradi- the tradition, right, of literature dispersing? Because you know, the United States is the West. I mean, we we you know, the Caribbean is the West, and so if the Caribbean and the U.S. and you know Latin America as well, if these are all the West, then all of a sudden the contamination question is real. It's like the call is coming from inside the house. Hmm, and right. so so this moment of where he's like arguing about castration, I think it's also animated or at least structurally is animated. Like we, I don't want to psychologize Harold Bloom, but is sort of structurally animated by a, a, a reaction against the possibility of contamination. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's how I've been thinking about it. Um, said differently i mean when you read his book and when i skimmed his wikipedia page the authors he mentions you really have to wonder if he ever even read a black woman author he edited a, a collection on a multi, uh, collections on multiple black authors including tony morrison but uh no uh ivy league professor editor should be assumed to have read the things they edited <laughs> <laughs> wow <laughs> it certainly doesn't come through in his um, citations, if you can call them that, in Anxiety of Influence. Right. His hand wave, that is his version of a citation. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think about the Senghor piece in relation to it? I'll just say this, um, and then as we sort of move towards wrapping up, um, you know, what's interesting to me and now, like thinking about it in a new vocabulary that you all provided here around life and fear of contamination. And it seems like, you know, for, you know, the various kinds of issues that we'll continue to raise around Senghor's like piece on education where, you know, the oral tradition needs to find a script so that it can be reproduced. So every Senegalese schoolboy, as he says, um, can read the great African oral traditions. Right. But his, no, his, So there's that, which is this move away from orality, which I think is not, I think it will become really important as we go along as a, as a thing to critically interrogate. And we began that of course last night as well. But when he talks about assimilation and association, when he, when he talks about how to, um, how to think about Senegalese cultural production in relation to France, you know, he doesn't fear contamination. And in that way, he's strangely before independence is post-colonial, right? Because so much anti-colonial struggle is is about the need to to expel what's contaminated you. You know, we talked a little bit last night when Fatima brought up the author as cannibal, and you know the consumption and 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 you know um, digestion of of outside ideas and. You know, I think it was you, Shannon, who said, but then the excrement is like you leaving part of yourself out, you know, and, um, you know, there's this, the digestion metaphor is really interesting to me, but maybe naively or maybe not. um, I find it so interesting that, that 
Senghor is essentially trying to say, you know, we have enough life in Africa. We don't depend on France for life, and we don't depend on life to come from the future. So we can take on the life of France without it killing us. We can take out take in elements of the life of France, I should say, elements, not the entire, elements of the life of France without threatening our own life. And in that way is not animated by a fear of contamination. And I think directed by a feeling of the vibrancy of African life, that it's not under threat. And some of the things that came up were, of course, this is a moment of naivete, right? The function of the colonial is much deeper than those essays seem to suggest. But it also is, in some ways, you know, 32 years before um, anxiety of influence, it's already thinking influence uh, outside of the question of death. I don't know how the Senghor resonated for you all, but that was sort of where I was trying to situate it when I assigned it. Because it's a totally odd pairing. If you were to tell somebody that, I'm sure no one would understand why are these weird little tiny Senghor essays being set alongside theory of influence. Yeah, I think for for me it's a similar, not to be a broken record, but it's a similar question to um, these kind of disciplinary challenges of like, the the possibility of what he's saying relies on France to change as well. So it's kind of this this sense of um, it is optimistic in in some ways, and 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 that's what makes it strong. But I think it's it's based in an idea that um, that the French would be willing to take on Senegalese traditions and like you know make jollof rice like a national dish, you know, of France. Um, or like, you know, part of their cuisine, for example, like, you know, so something like that, that, um, but I think it's interesting because toward the end of what we were talking about last night, um, I was, you know, struggling to think about the idea of applying the bloom work to, you know, to things like, um, Zong, you know, that was the example that came up, but like, you know, again, trying to apply this perspective that very much is written without anyone any that that it's based in an epistemology that is completely outside of valuing black people's existence and humanity and to apply that to um a a text from a caribbean author for example i was sort of struggling with that that concept but i think it's interesting to kind of envision the inverse which is like how can we use more sort of caribbean black african philosophers to critique the western tradition or to think through the western tradition um and it's funny because i think about you know like people using glissant to talk about faulkner or you know which is one of those moves right and so you know i i think yeah, I think I was sort of wondering, thinking through it, like the, the efficacy of like, what can we use Bloom for? Like, even as it's useful to think through it, um, is there enough in there to kind of do battle with the the core and base inequities in what, in, in sort of his perspective? Um, yeah. And I think there, you know, again, I think there might be, but it's an ongoing question for me it takes some creative bridge work i mean i I would suggest as a sort of frame or sort of format for thinking about this this is totally self-serving because my own work but is the way 
you know, and I think the revisionary ratios help give some vocabulary for it, but the way the, the, uh, former subjects of empire end up writing about and against empire in a way that, that if clashed, right. If it has this sort of, sort of agonistic, not sort of, if it has this agonistic effect on the former colonizer, it enacts a decolonization of the colonizer, right? This purging is a sort of moment of like, in what ways are we intractably colonial, even in our post-colonial moment as former colonial powers, right? But that sets a relationship there, not of love, but of death, right? Not of life, but of death. This decolonizing the colonizer means something about the colonizer needs to die, right? In, yeah. in armed struggle for national independence, like literally the troops have to die. Mm-hmm. In terms of cultural decolonization, it's something about the culture has to be killed. And I'm not sure, but I'm interested uh, in pursuing what in what ways the family scene out of Freud gives a vocabulary to that and where that vocabulary maybe falls short. I don't know, what do you think, Shannon? Um, I know in class you mentioned how part of like original psychoanalysis is this utter destruction of your life in order to rebuild it. And this idea of something in the culture needs to die. The thing here is that it wouldn't be a complete death, right? Yeah. You always need some sort of death for um, more life. It's part of growth um, on a biological level but also like on this like spiritual artistic level. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's why I'm thinking about exactly that overall thoughts are just swirling. Yeah. And I think that like, what is the relationship of life in the anxiety of influence and how much is the exclusion of life from those revisionary ratios actually going to limit how we think about, you know, as you say, like it's not pure death. Right, it's, it's life and death at the same time. Like whether it's a psychoanalytic scene, whether it's the sustenance of our bodies, right? That, that parts of our bodies die and, and regenerate, things die so that we can eat them, so that we can live. You know, um, but that requires life and death to be simultaneous. I don't know that that's in anxiety of influence. It's such a, I don't know. It, it, it does seem it's being really petty editorial, but at sometimes I'm just like, Oh, give it a break, man. Like, this is like so dramatic. Like, come on now. He just tried to write a better poem. Was he really like trying to destroy the Promethean in his precursor? Right. Yeah. But that, but that idea of like a loving overcoming of your predecessor, the way like every child, Every parent wants a child to be better, right? Every child, you know, at some level maybe wants to be better than their parents, whether it's politically or economically or culturally, you know, those moments are mixtures of love and death, of life, sorry, of life and death, right? Of love and violence. Um, But the love and life element in anxiety of influence is just really hard, if not impossible for me to identify, which maybe on those really dramatic terms is a, is a moment to uh, conclude. (laughs) Like love, life, death, destruction. But um, I really think that these pieces, these two pieces, uh, uh, 
Christian and Bloom, they go in such different directions, but they bring out what for me is a hidden language, and we've been able to get into it today, a hidden language of critical theory, which is the way uh, life and death or love and destruction end up animating either in balance or one to the exclusion of the other, so much of what goes on in critical theory. You know, I always, as I kept saying last night, I really want to just move to these next sections so you can see sections of the course. You can see how, you know, Heidegger, Derrida, you know, Philip, um, you know, Murray, all of these other people sort of revisit these scenes of, of, of love and destruction or life and death. Um, but those animate critical theory and they, they really are about you know, it's not just for me rhetorical elements of the infrastructure of critical theory. It's also like, you know, this is how critical theoretical discourse either does or does not create spaces for new modes of inquiry. So it's not just sort of a general character for me, but also the way of if this is about death and destruction, like, how are you ever going to have an expansive critical theory space or literary production space for people whose lives are animated by the threat of death, whether that's, you know, women, people of color, you know, queer people, um, you know, immigrants, right? If you know, Who walks into a space of death and destruction, <laughs> but also who walks into a space where destruction is in the service of love and life? There would be my platitude. But anyway, I appreciate you all taking time to uh, chat and um, and work through this material. So have a great rest of your Friday. Thanks so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you.